Well, as many of you know, today is a significant day in the life of New England. I've already seen some Patriots gear floating around from a, a baby wrap to a t-shirt, and I'm sure there's much more that I haven't seen. Um, it is significant because tonight at 6.30, as many of you know, the New England Patriots are going to play for the title of World Champions. If this is brand new news to you, I'm, I'm sorry that, you know, I don't you know, this is something you probably should know. Um, but, uh, I mean, we have the opportunity to bring home the fourth Vince, Vince Lombardi trophy since 2001. And that would look great next to our Stanley Cup trophy, right? Um, but uh, in all seriousness, I'm sure most of you are going to watch the Super Bowl tonight. And I'm sure many for different reasons. You know, probably some of you could care less about football or the game. Some of you probably, most of you probably could care less about the halftime show. You never know what you're going to get there. Um, but I would say most of us like the commercials. Or at least we're intrigued by the, the, the commercials and the creativity that is shown during the Super Bowl. So here's what I did for you. I did a preview of many of the 2012 commercials that you're going to see Tonight. Now, if you were to just think and reflect for a second, what kind of commercials do you think are going are gonna to just predominantly control and be shown tonight? Car commercials? Beer? What do you think? Cell phone? Cell phones? Doritos? There might be a good Doritos one. Well, I've got a little bit I want to share with you. So, I mean, you've got Honda, you've got Acura, you've got Cadillac, Hyundai, Kia. You've got all these car commercials. One that jumped out to me was a new one that was done by Toyota Camry. Now, you know I drive a Toyota Camry, so this is kind of a little personal you know, connection there for me. But they've decided, they said, after reinventing the Toyota Camry, we've decided to keep on reinventing. So as you watch this commercial, you're going to see it tonight. These are the things they've reinvented. Now, you've got to know this. Commercials aren't just about entertainment. They have a message that they want to get you to buy into and believe. And they're going to play on many different fronts. So these reinventions, let me just kind of describe. The first one is you have a guy walking into his house, and they said, we've reinvented your couch. And it looks, you, you look up, and it's a couch made of women in bathing suits that have made the couch. And, it, and it, then it says, and this is also available in men. Um, the next thing they've reinvented, they have reinvented a police officer who is no longer a police officer, even though he's dressed up like one, he's a masseuse. So traffic stop? No, just a free massage. You know, you get pulled over on the side of the road and the officer comes and gives you a great massage. I mean, isn't that a great reinvention? Um, what about this? They have reinvented a baby that doesn't poop. Moms, any, you know, is, I mean, I know there are many exhausted moms out there today that will be relieved, the baby that doesn't poop. What about this one? They've reinvented the DMV. Now, I know many of you probably hate that place, but now the DMV is a place for free ice cream and working on your golf game. I'm not going to lie. This is, this is what Toyota is working on. They've got a blender that now plays Lionel Richie. They've reinvented a plant that fights crime. 
So honey, there's no need to be in fear at night when I'm gone. You've got a plant that if anybody breaks in, it will attack them and throw them out the window. I'm, this is serious stuff here. Three things left. They've reinvented curtains that are made of pizza. So if you're too lazy to get up off of the lazy boy to go into the kitchen to get something to eat, you just lean over and you eat the curtains. And after you've eaten the curtains, you can go outside because they've reinvented rain that now makes you skinnier. So you can burn off those calories you just consumed by standing in the rain. And you see this guy's clothes are just falling off because the rain's hitting him and he's just like that, lost weight. But the, the commercial ends with this. Who's going to watch the Super Bowl tonight? Now You're, you're going to be looking for it. I want to see the Toyota Camry commercial. It ends with this. The reinvented Toyota Camry is available with everything you could possibly want. And just sit back for a second and reflect, what's going on in this commercial? What have they played on? Your, your pursuit of pleasure, whether it's men or women, scantily clad, the way they're dressed, whether it's food, whether it's listening to Lionel Richie, you know, the music, um, artistic pleasure to the DMV, to the band. I mean, you think of whatever takes pleasure and delight away from you, they're saying, this will give you everything you want. If, and this is what commercials want to get at. They want to say, if you don't have this, you won't have this. You want to be satisfied? Well, then you must have this. You've got to have the Toyota Camry. Let me ask you this. If you get everything that you could possibly want, could you be satisfied if you don't have God? If you could get everything you could possibly want, will you be satisfied if you don't have God? That's the question that I want to pursue today. Where do we find true satisfaction and joy. And as we turn to Ecclesiastes, the main truth, the main point that we're after today is this. True satisfaction is found only in God because all worldly pleasures are futile. That's the message as we turn to Ecclesiastes. So let me encourage you, if you've got a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, we've got many underneath the seats there in front of you. I want you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. You can find this on page 553. So in the Bibles we provided is page 553, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Now Tanner last week introed us into this great book, and he gave us a little background that I just want to review real quick. We find at the very beginning of Ecclesiastes that these are the words of the preacher. And, and this preacher is on a journey. And so what we've got a glimpse here, we've got this preacher who's on a journey for meaning, satisfaction, and life. And, and he's, he's, he's not just about any type of satisfaction. He, he's after ultimate and lasting satisfaction. What is, what is true meaning in life? In other words, at the end of the day, at the end of your life, what can we show for all of our toil underneath the sun? all of our labor, all of our work, all of our pursuits? Is there anything that we can have to show 
for it. And when we come to Ecclesiastes 2 here, we have a reflect, he's basically reflecting on his life. All these pursuits, and really his pursuit of pleasure, it's a reflection, and then he's going to give us some conclusion. But before we jump in here, you know what? His journey is not that much different from ours. My guess is that every single one of you are asking these questions. Man, what's life about? How can I find meaning? How can I find purpose? How can I find ultimate satisfaction in life? I mean, look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Look at verse 1. He lays out the whole thrust of this chapter by saying this. Ecclesiastes 2.1. I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Have you ever taken up this test? Have you ever said, you know what? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to ask my heart. I'm going to say, you know what? I'm going to open it up. Let's go pursue pleasure. Enjoy yourself. What we're going to see here is, is his reflection on this pursuit of pleasure. And, and, and we're going to see what results he came up with. But the reason I know that his journey is just like all of us, uh, a guy by the name of Blaise Pascal, you probably have heard of him, he says this. He says that all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Every single one of you, you seek after happiness. And when he uses this word happiness, he's talking about joy, not just a smile on your face. He's talking about deep-rooted joy, satisfaction. Everybody pursues it. And you know what? The pursuit of happiness is not a sin. Don't hear me say that today. I'm not saying that the pursuit of happiness is a sin. John Piper even, he says it further. He says that seeking one's own happiness is not a sin. It is a simple given in human nature. In other words, just as gravity is a law of nature, so is this. We all pursue happiness. So let's look here at the preacher's pursuit and see what we can find and see what the implications might be for our own pursuit of happiness in our life. So we saw here he's pursuing pleasure. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 again, and then we'll work through this. Um, actually, verses 1 and 2. So I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. What we see here at the very beginning is not only what his goal is, happiness, we see his conclusion. He doesn't, he doesn't leave you hanging to the very end. He says, by the way, if you're curious, just so you know, in this pursuit, the end is this, it's vanity. This word vanity you're going to hear it keep coming up in Ecclesiastes. And, and Tanner helped us last week to really get a glimpse of what this word means. This word vanity can mean vapor, mist, something that is fleeting, that is short, but it can also mean meaningless, worthless, absurd. So what, what he's saying here is that pursue pleasure, but hey, by the way, this is my conclusion. It's meaningless. It is worthless. It is absurd. And he explains this in verse 2. He said, I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? That's his conclusion. Now let me ask you this. Why would he conclude that pleasure is worthless? Well, here's what's happening. The preacher's pursuit of pleasure, his pursuit was not wrong. 
The pursuit of pleasure. We just said there's, there's nothing sinful in the pursuit of happiness, joy, delight, pleasure. But his pursuit, as he's reflecting here, was a pursuit that was apart from God. So as we're going to see here in verses 3 and following, is that where did he seek for pleasure? He sought it in wine. He, shot, he sought it in possessions. He sought it in sex and relationships. And he did not seek it from God. So this may be you today. This may be where you're pursuing pleasure. And, and we're going to get a glimpse here of this preacher saying, hey, I did it too. And here's my conclusion. So let's look at the first one here. The first of his pursuits, he lays it out in verse 3. He says in verse 3, he says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what is good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Now, let me just make a few observations about the text, and then we'll keep going here. We see, first of all, that this is a very sensual and self-centered pursuit. Why would he pursue after wine? He was saying, hey, it was about me. Secondly, what we're going to see here is that, man, there was determination and focus. He says in verse 3 that I searched with my heart. And this heart, he's referring to the core of who I am. I was determined. I was focused. This is how I'm going to find pleasure. And what was his purpose in all this? We see that at the very end of verse 3. He says, I wanted to, to do this till I might see what is good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days that we have on earth. Now, just think about that for a second. What is good for man to do under heaven during these few days we have on earth? These few days. Do you hear this vanity there? What does vanity mean? Vapor, mist. He's talking about your life. And he's highlighting, you've got a few days. Now, we may talk about 80 years 90 years or 100 years to live, but none of us are guaranteed that. And so, and really in the grand scheme of things, in the grand scheme, grand scheme of eternity, our 100 years is a few days. So it's how the, the vapor, the mist, the fleetingness of your life. And he's saying, what is good for you to do? You know what? He presents death as the adversary. Death is coming. And so in light of that, is there anything good for us to do? That was his pursuit. But he throws a curious phrase here. Look back at the text with me in verse 3. I searched with my heart how to cheer my mind, my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. What does that mean? He's pursuing pleasure through wine, through drinks, and he says, but at the same time, my heart was still guiding me with wisdom. So we've got a few options here. Is he, is, is he saying that he kept his drinking under control and did not pursue intoxication? Is that what he's saying? That he just sampled with wine, but yet was rational and alert the whole time? Or is he saying... I jumped head first and went all the way. And at the same time, I was reflecting, what good is this doing for me in the big picture? Now, when we think about this word wisdom, when you think of, hey, 
What is wise in life? Do you think, hey, the pursuit of pleasure in wine is wisdom? Now, where do we usually go for wisdom? Really close to Ecclesiastes, we go to Proverbs, right? Now, what I want to highlight here is that whatever wisdom he's talking about seems to be different from the wisdom given in Proverbs. Look at this verse here. In Proverbs 23, verses 29 through 33, says this, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. Now hang in there with me. I'm going somewhere in a second. We go to Proverbs, and this isn't the only one. I could show you multiple cases where the, the, the writer there in Proverbs is saying, hey, be alert. The pursuit of wine is not necessarily wise. There are many potential dangers. Now, notice that he, he highlights here those who tarry long over wine. Now, you're going to hear me in a second. I'm not arguing today that you should never drink alcohol. So let me just put that aside there. But... Let's look at what Proverbs says. He says, there are some dangers here. And if we were to say, this is what Proverbs says is wisdom, and yet come to Ecclesiastes, and he's saying, hey, I pursued pleasure in wine, and I kept wisdom in it. I want to say this. I believe his use of wisdom in Ecclesiastes is ironic. I think he's using irony here. Um, and what we start to see, that the wisdom he's talking about is different from the wisdom in Proverbs. I think another clue and hint to this, going back to Ecclesiastes 2.3, is right after where he says, my heart's still guiding me with wisdom. He says, and how to lay hold on folly. Now, folly is obviously not a good thing. And the pursuit of folly is not wise. What seems to be is that he's going to leave no stone unturned. Actually, let's jump ahead in the text because I think it's going to help our conclusion here. Jump on down to verse 10. In chapter 2, verse 10, he says, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. Do you know the assumption that I get is that he jumped head first. And that what he was doing here with wine was not to stay away from intoxication. He wanted to see, hey, will this give me meaning, joy, lasting satisfaction in life? Now, the text doesn't say whether he got intoxicated or not, but that seems to me to be the implication. Hey, will wine, will alcohol, will it satisfy my deepest longings in life? So what does he mean here then when he says, my heart's still guiding me? I believe he's doing this. I believe he plunges into pleasure, but part of him stands back the whole time, and he's asking, asking this, what is this doing to me? You see, and we're going to see this through this whole pursuit of pleasure. He's pursuing pleasure, but he's not just doing it just to do it. He's doing it, and he's stepping back. Okay, what are the, what's the conclusion here? What's the implications? Is this satisfying me? Hey, have you, have you stopped to do that? I don't know where you all are at in life. 
Maybe you are after the pursuit of pleasure, but have you just stopped and, and look back and let your heart maybe guide you with wisdom to say, is there any good? Is there any lasting delight in my actions? Now, let me give you a few thoughts here on alcohol. I will not go farther than what Scripture says. I think it's pretty clear that Scripture says that drunkenness is sin. We come to Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine. And I even think as you read through the Proverbs, the concern there with alcohol is what it does to your body, is that it is going to be an influence on your body instead of the Spirit. You know, we could all just kind of step back and look at our world right now, and we could come to the conclusion that alcohol leads to a ton of danger. It's destroying marriages. It's destroying relationships jobs. We're, you're going to see, if you drive down I-93 tonight, you know what you're going to see plastered on a sign above you? What's it going to say? Don't drink and drive. I know because I saw it coming home the other day. That's what they're going to be, hey, because everybody's out partying tonight. There are consequences and influences because of what we do. We could all step back and say, you know what? Yes, there are, this leads to many dangers but I want to be careful in this because we have what I want to hold up, legalism on one hand and liberty on the other. Legalism is going to say, you, if you drink alcohol, you can't be a Christian. Legalism is going to add up an extra rule on top of the gospel. And you know what? If any of you were to ever start preaching, if you drink alcohol, you can't be a Christian, then I'm going to say, I'm going to be the very first one to say, pass the, the Chardonnay. Pass it. I'll take a glass. Give me some Kendall Jackson. I'll be the first one to say it. Because I hate legalism. Now, at the other end of the perspective is liberty. And I would say that our leaning in the context here of New England is probably not legalism. It's going to be liberty. Because what? Everybody drinks alcohol here. This is, this is the culture that we're in. So let me, let me just speak with you for a few moments, and I want to kind of hold these in tension. I'm not going to say to drink alcohol is sin, because the scriptures don't say that. At the same time, I'm not going to say, yeah, go drink, be free, and don't. You know why that would? Because that would ignore the scriptures that do highlight there are many dangers there. So how do we, man, how do we conclude here? I want to, I want to give you an example to just kind of stimulate your thinking. Not only is it wrong for somebody to say you can't be a Christian if you drink alcohol, I'm also going to say that it's wrong for you to drink alcohol and cause somebody who's been fighting it for six years to battle an addiction and cause them to stumble into temptation. That is also wrong. Now, I don't know if you saw this past week, but a guy by the name of Josh Hamilton I want to share with you about him. You may be familiar with him. He was the number one overall pick in the Major League Baseball draft in 1999, I believe from North Carolina. He was, he was drafted by the Tampa Bay Rays, and you know what? He did, that was in 1999. He didn't see his first Major League game until 2007. You know why? 2003, he was banned for alcohol and drug abuse. Get this. 
He's the number one overall pick. The, he, he, man, and, and you know what he's done in the past few years. He's an amazing baseball player. He's got all of this going for him, and he's got alcohol and drug addiction, and he can't even use his talents that he's, that he's been given. And he comes to a radical transformation. He comes, I don't know his full story, but I know he's a follower of Christ now. And, and the gospel changes his life. And so he says this, on October the 6th in 2005, he vowed to stay sober and not even drink a drink for the rest of his life. Now, since 2005, he has relapsed twice. He did it once in 2009 and most recently this past week. It was all, if you follow ESPN.com, you probably saw the story. Now, I want you to hear his very words about this subject here. He didn't relapse into drugs. And both times, it has been alcohol, and it's just been one incident each time. One incident in 2009, and one incident this past week. He says this, I cannot take a break from my recovery. My recovery is Christ. My recovery is an everyday process. When I take that one day off, it leaves me open for a moment of weakness, and it's always been that way. You want to get into the mind of Josh Hamilton? Well, I want you to listen to this. ESPN reports that he has worked to even avoid the smell of alcohol. And that his teammates, he, he now plays for the Texas Rangers. He was a 2010 MVP of the American League. Um, so he's an amazing baseball player now. But it says even his teammates, it says they have catered their post-game ce postseason celebrations for him by having ginger ale and water showers before breaking out the champagne after winning a playoff series. Why? Because they know that even the smell of it can send him back down a path that he has just fought years to gain victory over. Now here's my point. He's in a battle. You know what would be sin for you? To go take that, that Chardonnay and sip it and drink it right in front of him. That is sin. That is wrong. So let me just caution you. I'm not going to say alcohol is wrong, but I do want you to just, have you thought about, you know what? There, my liberty to drink stops with a guy like Josh Hamilton. I will freely lay down my right because I love a brother in Christ like that. You follow that? And so there's a amount of wisdom that is needed here. For the rest of you, I want you to think about this. If Josh Hamilton is you, and you think that alcohol will bring lasting pleasure, look at him. It will not. Number one baseball player, drugs and alcohol. He's not satisfied, and he's still fighting it today. And you can go read a story. It's probably still up on ESPN.com. Alcohol will not bring lasting pleasure satisfaction. That's the first truth I want you to see. The second one, let's go into verse 4. The, the second truth I want you to see today is that the pursuit of pleasure and possessions is worthless. We see in verse 4, the preacher continues on his reflection. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest or growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. 
I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. He has it all. And, and you'll see, this is one of the many reasons that we usually relate this preacher to Solomon. Because you can go to the historical books and you can see Solomon was one of the most wise men to live. He had, he had all these great possessions. He even had all these great concubines, which led to his downfall. But what we see here is that he's using Solomon here as, as, a, as a picture to say, look at what all he had. Is he happy? Is he satisfied? And, and even the description here, this is a very self-centered pursuit. I mean, look at the words. I made, look, look at this very self-centeredness of this. I made vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens. I made myself pools. He, he's not even talking about making these things for the benefit of others. This pursuit of pleasure was all about him. I want all of this for me. And you know what this also sounds like? It sounds like he's recreated a Garden of Eden. I mean, look at what it describes there. This idea of made is just like Genesis 1 and 2. God made, God made, God made. And it, what does it say? It says he made vineyards, gardens, all kinds of fruit trees. That language, go read Genesis 1. And it's going to be the similar language you see in Genesis 1. Um, this idea of gold and silver, you're going to find that in Genesis 2. And so it's almost as if you've got this super Solomon here. He's trying to recreate this Garden of Eden. But you know what? This time, there are no forbidden fruits. You catch that? He's recreated, and he said, man, I'm going to let my heart go after it all. I'm going to get all of it. Because we know in the Garden of Eden, there was a forbidden fruit, right? Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this one here, no, he can have at it. Everything is free game. And you know what he concludes? It's vanity. All of it. It's vanity. Why is it vanity? Because even at the end of my life, and again, he's, he's thinking big picture, this doesn't bring lasting satisfaction because I'm going to die and this is going to all either fall down or go to somebody else. What do I have to gain from all of my toil? You know what possessions do? Possessions rot. Possessions break. Possessions can be stolen and they can burn down like that. Possessions will not satisfy. But you know what? We live in a world where materialism and consumerism is what you, tonight, the Super Bowl, you know what you're going to see? Consumerism and materialism. And they want you to believe it. You won't be satisfied unless you have this. We even get a high from new stuff. I love what Matt Chandler says here. Look at this quote. He says, those new clothes 
That new house, this new car, the new gadget, whatever you collect just feels good for a second and makes everything settle for a a moment. But if given too long, it loses its power. And it will be time for something new. The new is intoxicating. And most most of us are too inebriated with the stuff of future garage sales to realize we're drinking sand. Did you hear that last phrase? We're too inebriated with the stuff of future garage sales to realize we're drinking sand. Possessions will not satisfy. You know what one of the key phrases tonight on the Super Bowl ad is? is going to be the newest and the latest. You know, as soon as you think you've got the best new phone, the iPhone 5 comes out. And you got to go get it. Or you got that iPad too, and then you, the iPad. It's, it's a continual thing. There's always going to be something newer, something greater, and you're ne- this, this high, you're not going to be satisfied. It doesn't, and you hear my language, lasting and ultimate satisfaction, it doesn't bring it because you've always got to go on to the next greatest and best thing. Look, all of our hearts run after these things. The preacher says, it's worthless. It's worthless. Let's continue on. The third truth I want to share with you is this. The pursuit of pleasure and relationships and sex is worthless. What did we see there by the preacher at the end of verse 8? He said, and I got concubines, the delight of mankind. Surely, he's got wine, he's got possessions, and he's got women. He's got the ladies. Surely. He's, gonna, he's got it all. I mean, what else? I mean, can you give? I mean, does he need anything else? He's got it all. The ladies don't give him satisfaction. Why? You know what? Relationships and sex are a beautiful thing because God created them. As you guys know, I'm married. I love my wife. Marriage is great. But I want you to hear this. When we elevate relationships and sex above what God created for, them for, they become disastrous and devastating. Why? It's because you will never find a person that completes you. I love my wife, but she doesn't complete me. She doesn't satisfy me. And neither, you will not, none, some of you are here single and you've got this, you know, facade, man, if I just get this person, everything, no. You're going to get married and you're going to realize, man, they're a sinner just like me. And they're not—they're going to let you down. So you know what? A fling, a fantasy, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, or even a spouse is not going to satisfy what's going wrong—going wrong in you. Only Jesus will do that because your heart is broken. You don't need a boyfriend or girlfriend. You need a savior, and he's the only one who can fix your heart. Sex and relationships is worthless. Last truth I want to share with you and we'll wrap up. The pursuit of pleasure in God is the only worthwhile toil in life. If you don't get anything today, if you just embrace this, believe this, wrap your mind around this, this will only, this is the only pursuit of pleasure that is worthwhile. Look at verses 9 through 11. We see here, so he says, I became great. And surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. 
Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun the conclusion of the matter. All of it was vanity. He becomes great. He bears all the marks of royalty and greatness. He does it all with wisdom. He lived better. He celebrated harder than anybody. Yet, he was not happy. He, there, was, there was no self-restraint. There was no self-denial. He fully pursued these delights. You know, this language actually reminds me again of the Garden of Eden. I want you to look at the words in Genesis 3 of, of Eve. When she was tempted by the Satan, by the serpent, it says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, her eyes taking a hold of what she saw would be good. She saw it was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise. Do you see the pursuit of wisdom here? She took of it and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her. Now, let's leave this verse here. I want to just reflect with it for a second. You've got the preacher now saying, whatever my eyes desired, I'm going to pursue and see if it will satisfy me. And his conclusion is this. It's vanity. Now, you know what wisdom would have been from him? Learn from Eve. She did the very same thing. She took her eyes, and whatever gave her delight, she went after. And what were the consequences? Kicked out of the garden, relationship with God distorted, and she was not satisfied. The reason all of this is vanity is because the preacher was not after temporary joy and delight. He was after lasting meaning. So let me ask you this. If the king, who had everything at his disposal, couldn't arrive at pleasure, what thinks you will? What makes you think you will? That's the point of Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11. This guy had it all, and he wasn't satisfied. Wisdom for you would be, I'm going to stop my pursuit of pleasure, and I'm going to turn which that to that which is most pleasurable, God. Which raises the question, why does God give lasting meaning? And I want to return to Blaise Pascal's quote who continued on, and he said this, These are all inadequate, referring to man's attempt to fill his life, because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object. That is to say, only by God himself. The reason these other things do not satisfy is because they are fleeting they are temporary. 
But God, if He fills your heart and your life, it is an immutable and it is an eternal object that will never leave and will grant joy and pleasure forevermore. So this is it. God is the source of full and lasting pleasure. We know that from a verse we read earlier, Psalm 1611. Get it, he is the source. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So you've got God who is the source of all these pleasures and delight and satisfaction. And then you've got us. And if we are going to get to God, who is the source of all of this pleasure, we need a Savior. So do you know what it says about Jesus in 1 Peter 3.18? Look at this. It says, Jesus suffered to bring us to God. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. How do you get to God? Christ. That is why he lived a perfect life. That is why he died on the cross. That's why he was crushed. It says he died for sins because your sin and my sin separate us from God. But if you will embrace Christ as the greatest treasure of your life, repenting of your sin, repenting of your pursuit of pleasure, of everything that is less than that which is truly the best, repenting, turning, and believing all the promises that God has for you in Christ, that if you'll turn, if you'll confess, you'll be forgiven of your sin, you'll have eternal life. You know what Jesus says? Jesus says in John 6, 25, he who believes in me will never be thirsty again. If you will repent, embrace that. God will draw near to you and he will satisfy you. Some of you today are here because you have sought after pleasure in alcohol, possessions, sex, and you've come to this same conclusion. It's worthless. Maybe that's why you're here today that you just started searching because you knew that you were pursuing things in life and you weren't happy. Let me ask you this. Have you embraced Jesus Christ as the greatest treasure of your life? Repenting of your sin, believing and trusting in Him? You can do that today and find lasting joy. Some of you others are here today and you're currently in this same pursuit and you're not convinced that it won't satisfy you. Let me just tell you this, it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time until you come into these same conclusions the preacher came to. I just hope it's not too late. You've got a chance, these few days you have, to turn and embrace Christ. That would be wisdom for you today. Learn from Eve. Learn from the preacher. But then, you know what, there may even be some of you today that are just totally ignorant and saying, you know what, sex and relationships, no, I haven't pursued that. Possessions, no, I haven't pursued that. Wine, alcohol, I haven't pursued that. And you may be asking, do I have to pursue these pleasures to know that they won't satisfy me? And I want to say, no, 
But that's, it. that's what the world is going to tell you. Go pursue it and find out for yourself. And you know what wisdom is for you? Wisdom for you is to say, I don't have to get blasted and wasted to know that it's not going to satisfy me. And I don't have to go through tons of relationships and brokenness and sex and all of that junk to know that it's not going to satisfy me. That is wisdom. Listen and believe. Where are you at today? Embrace Christ as the greatest treasure of your life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are bombarded daily with the pursuit of pleasure that is not honoring to you. Not only is it not honoring to you, it is not fulfilling to us. Grant us eyes today to truly see that which will satisfy God, I pray you would open blind eyes today to truly see how Jesus is the greatest treasure because he brings us to God who is the ultimate source of lasting significance and pleasure and satisfaction. God, I pray we would embrace him today. In Christ's name.